You'll find in the announcement sheet an outline for this morning's message. And uh, while you're getting those out, uh, just a reminder to all the guys that this Tuesday we're going to have the men's prayer lunch. And it's going to be over in the fellowship hall. Start at noon. Cost is $4. And I'd like to invite all of the guys to come in to be a part of that lunch. It's a, it's a time where we, uh, we eat together and we share prayer requests and we pray with and for each other. And it's a great encouraging uh, time of fellowship for all of the fellas. And so, men's prayer luncheon, remember that's coming up this Tuesday. Uh, if you uh, are arriving a little bit late this morning, you may not have heard that uh, Cody Spear and the Spear family uh, are down with, with illness and sickness uh, right now. As you can imagine, families with real tiny little kiddos uh, are from time to time. And uh, so all of the activities that were scheduled tonight for our teenagers are going to be rolled to next Sunday night. And if you uh, uh, were planning on being here tonight, we'd love for you to, uh, uh, to come. But to, but to be at that slopstacle, I don't know what that is. It sounds kind of messy. But it's a, slop, a slopstacle. I guess it's an obstacle course. It's a slopstacle course. It doesn't sound like the thing a middle-aged man wants to be a part of. But if you're a teenager, I know you'll love it. And that's going to be this next week. And then finally... Uh, the next couple of weeks, I'm, I'm going to be talking about the Bible, the nature of the Bible, uh, just some of the, the nuts and bolts, a lot of it a reminder of the things that we believe about the Word of God. And the reason for it is this next year, we as a church are going to study the Bible from Genesis all the way to the maps in one year. On Sunday morning, we are going to preach through the entire Bible so that at the very beginning of the year, we're going to start at Genesis. And by the time we get to the end of the year, we will have pressed our mind into this entire book. Now, that's uh, that's at, at times that's uh, that's a little staggering to think that in a year we're going to to do that. But it can be done. We are going to do it. And it's going to be an amazing journey, amazing pilgrimage through God's word this next year. But for us to be able to do that and to approach God's Word with the right kind of spirit, the right kind of mindset, the right kind of understanding, and, and to, to really dig into that Word, I'm going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about some of the introductory type things that you need to know and need to re be reminded about as we get together and think about this book that we call God's Word. And what we're going to do now is begin that with this sermon entitled, The Reliable Book, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, this day demands that we begin in praise of You, for the day is Yours and we are Yours. Praise, Father, as a reminder that we do not live any days without reference to You, without Your commands, without Your will, without Your blessings. And we praise You for the gift of life and the gift of life together in this church and for the gift of life in Your world with all of its wonders. And this morning, Father, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank You for Your Word as it confronts all of our anxieties and it challenges all of our notions that are contrary to Your will and contests and topples all of the idols of our heart. And our prayer is that Your Word find welcome residence in our mind and our hearts, Father, all the days of our life. And to this end, we pray for eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all the church said. Very important verse that deals with the nature of God's Word is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It's up on the screen. For the Word of God is what? 
Alive and active, it's sharper than a double-edged what? Sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It judges not just the thoughts, but the attitudes. Not just the attitudes, but the thoughts of the heart. Now, what does that verse mean? Well, uh, let me give you an illustration. Uh, many years ago when the Soviet Union was still intact, there was a matinee idol by the name of Alexander uh, Rostazov. And he was famous as an actor. He was uh, everywhere he went. People recognized him. And Alexander starred in this sacrilegious play that was entitled uh, Christ in a Tuxedo. And he was playing the part of Jesus. And in this play, he was supposed to be dressed up for uh, the, the first couple of minutes of the play as whatever a, a communist thought Jesus looked like in that day. And he was to read the first two verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he was supposed to yank off that robe and he was going to cry out, Give me my tuxedo and my top hat. Well, the play began and the lights dimmed. And he begins to read the first two verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And instead of doing what the script said, he goes off script. And after a moment of silence, he begins to pray, and he, or he begins to tremble, and he begins to continue. He goes completely off script, and he continues to read the biblical text. And his fellow actors on stage begin to cough. They begin to stamp their feet. They begin to call out to him. And he just continues to read the Word of God and read the Word of God and read the Word of God. And finally, the stage manager decides, we've got to shut this thing down. It's a disaster. Let's, let's close the curtain. And as this curtain is closing, Alexander remembers a verse that he had learned as a kid. It's a verse from his childhood. Luke, Luke chapter 23, verse 42, where the thief says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And that's when the curtain came to a close. And on that night, Alexander Rostazev decided to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. It's an amazing book. And when people read this book honestly, and they read it for meaning, what happens is that there are major changes that begin to take place in what they believe and how they live. Now, if you've been a part of the MacArthur Park Church of Christ family for a, a little while, one of the things you'll recognize, we're not a family. We're not a church that likes to fight over unimportant things or insignificant things. But one thing that we will never compromise is this. It is our conviction that the Bible is the Word of God. Amen? Let's say it together as a church. It is our conviction that the Bible is the Word of God. Let's say it one more time. It is our conviction that the Bible is the Word of God question. Every time Scripture is read publicly in our church, like it was by Jose this morning, what is it that we say? This is God's Word. It's a reminder. It's a subtle reminder that what we're reading is not just something that I've made up or anybody's just made up for our amusement and for our enjoyment. It's a reminder that what we are reading from that text is God's Word. It is God's Word. What we believe is that the Bible is not a product of human beings. What we believe about the Bible is that it is a book by God about God. What we believe is that it is a divine self-disclosure. 
of God Himself in print. It is the uniquely inspired Word of God by the Spirit of truth, and it is completely reliable. Now, a lot of the information I'm going to give you this morning is a lot of the stuff that you have heard over the years. And so as we begin to think about the Bible and and the inspiration of the Bible and how we absorb the Word of God as the voice of God with eyes that see it and ears that hear it, I want to give us three reasons why this book is reliable and why we should cherish it above all other books. The first one is this. It's the unity of the story. The unity of the story. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39, He says, These are the very Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of His day were looking in order to find life, He tells them. What Jesus says in this chapter that's about the five witnesses that Jesus gives to show that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, He says, These are the very Scriptures that testify about Me. And then later on in the, the, uh, the, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, and you know the story as, as Jesus is, is, is meeting up with these guys that are on their way back to, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they're discussing whether or not Jesus was really the Messiah. And their, their hopes have been kind of dashed because they really thought that He was the one. He was going to restore Israel to its rightful place in the world the way that they perceived that. And now that Jesus had been crucified, had been dead for three days... Their hopes have been dashed. He's not the Messiah. He's not, he's not who He said He was. We're so confused and they're, they're downtrodden about this. Well, Jesus meets up with them and listens to them for a little bit. And then He says in verse 25, How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into His glory? And then verse 27, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, meaning from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in what? All. In all the Scriptures concerning Himself. What Jesus is trying to get those guys on the road to Emmaus to understand is that what was written in the Old Testament was written about Him. Which, when you think about it, is an incredible feat. That all of those years and all of those different authors writing before the time of Jesus were accurately writing the Word of God about Him. The Bible tells one story, even though there are three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It was written by over 40 authors, but it tells one story. Written over 1,500 years, but it tells one story. Written on more than one continent in the ancient world. And you've got these 66 documents that that comprise this one story. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And they all point to Him. The unity of the story, the book is reliable because it's talking about Christ. And then number two, reason number two, the accuracy of the text. You all know about the Dead Sea Scrolls? 1946-47, teenagers looking for a goat, throwing rocks into a cave, hears something that breaks, finds these, uh, these, these ancient jars filled with these ancient manuscripts, turns out a collection of 972 texts. Many of these texts of the Old Testament that we have in the Bible and what we have discovered with the Dead Sea Scrolls are these biblical texts that were 1,200 years older than what we had been using to translate the Bible into English and other languages previously. 
And what that discovery showed between the manuscripts we had been using and then in this discovery that went back 1,200 years of those manuscripts is that there was an uncanny accuracy between those two sets of manuscripts that had been discovered. Now let me tell you what that means in terms of, of two words. The first, the, the two words are diligence and density. Let's look at density first. One of the things that you hear people talk about all the time that, that have a, a sort of a skeptical stance or a relationship with the Bible is that you question whether or not the Bible is very accurate. A fellow by the name of F.E. Peter says this, on the basis of manuscript tradition alone, the works that made up the Christian's New Testament were the most frequently copied and widely circulated books of antiquity. Well over 5,300 known manuscripts of the New Testament. Over 24,000 fragments of manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, what in the world does that all mean? That just sounds like numbers. You've got 5,300 known manuscripts. You've got 24,000 fragments. What does that mean? Well, when you compare it to other works of antiquity, there is nothing that comes close to the density of material and manuscripts used for translation. Let me give you an example. Aristotle, nobody says that they don't believe that Aristotle, what we have of Aristotle, is accurate. But only 49 copies of any one work. The closest copy that we have during the time of Aristotle was, is 1,400 years after his death. The most widely read piece of Greek literature in the ancient world prior to Jesus was Homer. Everybody thinks that Homer's, that the Iliad and the Odyssey, what we have, is very, very accurate. There are only 643 copies of it. And it was written, the, 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 the earliest manuscript that we have of Homer's work was written 500 years after the original. Now when you compare that to the earliest copies of the New Testament, so a lot of people think that it's John probably dating as, as, as a, I'm, I'm talking about a, a manuscript as early as 125 A.D. You're talking about manuscripts that have been discovered within decades of when they were written. And you're not talking about, about 49 copies or 643 copies. You're talking about well over 5,300 copies plus 24,000 fragments of it. The density of material out of which this work has been translated and it comes to us in our language in English is staggering in terms of just the denseness of, of, the, of the manuscripts. But then on top of that, you have diligence. You know, one of the ways that that, uh, that, that books were reproduced, uh, reproduced and reprinted in the ancient world was that they were copied by scribes, which meant that you had, you had uh, the, these gigantic rooms. Uh, a lot of them were, were filled with all kinds of scribes, and they would sit and they would, they would copy painstakingly. They, they would, with, with discipline and, and with a, a certain degree of scholarship, they would copy one manuscript, that was sitting in front of them, onto this, this blank piece of paper. And to make sure that they were accurate, they would count letters and they would count words and they knew what the center word was and the last word was. And if when they counted and went through their proof texting and their quality control, if it did not match up, that, that copy was thrown away. Now, one of the, one of the, 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 the greatest examples of how, how this, this type of copying of the manuscripts was... was nearly like a religion, was in that community at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They were the ones that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the, to, to these guys, when they were copying what they considered to be God's Word, they took it so seriously that every time they, they wrote down God's name in that text, 
Before they wrote it down, they would lay their pen down, they would go and they would be baptized, and then they would get up and they would go and they would write God's Word name down on that text, and then they would go back and re-baptize themselves. To them, it was so holy and such tremendously spiritual work that, that they could not even write God's name without baptizing themselves and making sure that in their heart and in their mind and in their soul they had been purified. Now, when you're talking about men who were that diligent in putting together manuscripts or copying, reprinting those manuscripts, you are talking about a high degree of excellence and a, and a tremendously high degree of accuracy. And when you look at, at, at the accuracy of, of those, those texts, and when, when scholars are translating those, they find very, very... That there may be letters every once in a while. There may, there may be a, a vowel that's out of place. Sometimes there, there are letters that are run together in certain ways. But what they find is that the accuracy is, is undeniable of these texts. And so we have unity of the story in the Bible. It's, it, Jesus Himself is talking and saying, here is all of Scripture that points to Me. And all of the writers after Him are pointing back to His life and saying He is the Son of God. It's the unity of the story. Even though it was written over 1,500 years. And then you have just the sheer accuracy of the text. You can, you can bank on the reliability of your Bible. But then the final thing I want to mention this morning is the inspiration of the message. We've been talking a lot about the way that we read it and the way that we copy it. You know, it is an inspired message. What does the Bible say about itself? A couple of verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All Scripture is what, church? God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And because it is God-breathed, it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. That God is breathing His words into the text. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 19 we also have the prophetic message as something completely what? Reliable. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's say verse 21 together. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a tremendous, tremendous text. Now this is my definition of of what it means to be biblically inspired. That God has guided people by His Spirit of truth, that is His Holy Spirit, to write down the message accurately. I do not believe that it was divine dictation. I believe that God was using people, all kinds of different people, people of different educational backgrounds, of different personalities, of, of different experiences. You had Peter who was a fisherman. You had Luke who was a physician. You had Paul who was a rabbi. And yet God's Spirit guided their mind and their hand into writing down the truth, even though the expression of that truth would, would uh, portray their, their personality. For instance, John's Greek is not all that great. Luke's Greek is, is, is great. 
You have Paul using and making arguments that, 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 that portray his background and his educational experience. He uses all kinds of different Jewish rabbinical arguments, the Pesher arguments and things like that. The phrase that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter chapter 1 is to remind us that these people that are writing down these texts, that we believe is the inspired Word of God, were carried along by God's Spirit in that endeavor. In the way that a boat... In the way that a boat is, 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 is driven along by the wind. You have all kinds of different boats in the ancient world, but all of them driven by the wind. And regardless of the size of the boat or the shape of the boat or the design of that boat, it was all guided by that wind or driven by that wind. And that is what's happening with these fellows. As they're writing, God's Spirit in some way is helping their mind to come into a truth in such a way that they're able to write it down accurately and, and, and bring it on to us or pass it on to us. That's why Paul says to the Thessalonian church, chapter 2, that we thank God continually because when you receive the Word of God, that is, when, when they went to Thessalonica and they delivered the meaning of the Scripture about the life of Jesus to these people, when they received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not just as a human word, but as it actually is the Word of whom, church? The Word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. When we read this Word, this Bible, these ancient texts that are inspired by God's Spirit of truth that have been passed down to us, that we believe to be reliable because of all of the things that I've already talked about. What we are encountering is not just Mark Twain or, or John Grisham. What we are encountering are words that have been delivered to human beings from the heart of God. That's where those words were first birthed in the heart of God and been delivered to, to us through these men and the power of that Word is that it changes us. That it's like a two-edged sword. That God's Word is able to look deeply into our hearts and to see and our minds and to see the judgments and the thoughts of our hearts and the attitudes of our hearts and minds. That it is able to divide between spirit and soul and joints and marrow just like a, a, a sword, a human, a, a literal sword does in battle. That's why that Word is alive and active. Because it's God-inspired. The Bible is the Word of God. And we are surrounded at times by people who are trying to erode it. And that's one of the things that Satan tries to do. One of the things as the father of lies that Satan tries to do is to get us off of the truth that is God's Word and tries to erode those truths by making us believe lies. And the reason that he does that is because when people read the Word of God, like Alexander in the Soviet Union in the middle of that play, when they read it, they're changed. And they move, as Paul tells the church in Ephesus, they are able to move from death to life. I don't know who said it, but I believe it to be a fact that a Bible that is falling apart is usually owned by a person who isn't. You know, there is, there is so many good things that we're going to discover over this next year as we start with Genesis and we go through the entire year of looking at all of the words that God has presented us with through His Spirit and through these authors. And to understand the message of the Bible, 
and to understand the implications of the Bible for everyday living and to grow in our ability to, be, uh, to, to, to treat the book as, as something that is reliable, that we stand on with both feet and have convictions and, and assurances and, and accept every promise that's in it as being true because it comes from God. To go through that process and to grow in all of those areas is going to be a wonderful journey for our, trip, for our, for our church. But we need to understand the Bible as what it is for that to happen. That it's not just some book that's been delivered by, by men, about men, but it's a, it's a book by God and it's about God. It's divine self-disclosure to us. As we go through the next couple of weeks looking at the Bible, we're going to be growing in our convictions that the Bible is the Word of God and that this is a book that we need to absorb into our entire being. But suffice it to say that we think it's reliable because of it, the unity of the story, the accuracy of the text, and that we believe through faith that this book is inspired by God Himself. Maybe you've never given yourself to the author of this book. Maybe you've never had the remainder of your life, the story of your life, the, 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 the path of your life redirected, the story of your life rewritten because God has put His hand upon your heart and His Spirit in you having forgiven you of your sins as they've been washed away in baptism. After you've made that decision with all of your heart to follow the way of God that's called repentance and confessed, not just truths, but confessed with all of your heart that Jesus is Lord. If you've never done that this morning or if there are other ways that our church can use this book and use prayer to counsel you and point you to the one that we worship, God the Father, the Creator of all things. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front to, to talk with you. We want you to come down and talk to them now as we stand and sing together.